0: listening to without precedent a podcast series hosted by Eli Edwards and Nikki Pope of Santa Clara University School of Law we talk with inventors lawyers academics judges politicians about the impact of technology and innovation on the law and legal practice without precedent is sponsored by the High Tech Law Institute at Santa Clara Law
1: i'm Nikki Pope one of the co-hosts of Without Precedent.
0: And I'm Eli Edwards, the other co-host. My name is Eli Edwards, and I'm here with Eric Goldman and Annette Beebe. Eric Goldman is a professor of law, co-director of the High Tech Law Institute and supervisor of the Privacy Law Certificate at Santa Clara University School of Law. His research and teaching focuses on internet law, and he blogs on that topic at the Technology and Marketing Law blog, um, which you can find on the internet at blog.ericgoldman.org. Annette Beebe has worked in the legal field for over 21 years, spending the last eight years in the capacity of in-house counsel, now general counsel for Eccentric Ventures, LLC, which operates one of the oldest consumer complaint forums known as ripoffreport.com. Finding a love for the space where traditional business and the internet collide, Ms. Bebe formed a solo practice in late 2012 that caters primarily to businesses that operate online and individuals who have concerns about online content. Additionally, in her spare time, she works to educate youth and adults about repercussions from internet use through public speaking engagements, online courses, and blogs about fighting fair on the internet through her blog, Chronicles of the Yoga Pants Lawyer, which you can find at bblawplc.blog. So, for the both of you, what exactly is section 230 what exactly is that statute and what does it mean for the internet
2: sure so section 230 of the communications decency act is a federal law enacted in 1996 as part of the telecommunications act which among other things has these 26 words that everyone throws around now which states um, no provider or user of an internet or uh, interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. And for those that are listening who just heard that and said, what? It's essentially the law that protects intermediaries, you know, like middlemen um, of websites, blogs, social networking sites against legal liability from content created or shared by third parties on their platforms, regardless of the size um, or number of users. Of course you know this doesn't mean that platforms have some unbridled immunity there are specific exceptions outlined within the law that cover uh criminal and intellectual property concerns
3: i think i'll add to it is that uh section 230 sits on top of a tableau of other uh speech protective uh principles most importantly the first amendment which is a constitutional protection for free speech so There are limits of what the government can do to regulate uh, the publication of speech online that's set by the Constitution, the First Amendment. And then Congress went further in Section 230 to say that websites and other intermediaries won't be liable for third party content. So it supplements First Amendment protections. Okay.
0: Um, Why is it being credited with the, quote, creation of the Internet?
2: Well, I mean, Section 230 gives platforms the freedom to both host content and take content down as they deem appropriate for their users without liability for doing so. I mean, could you imagine what it would be like if a platform had to police every statement that was made um, to ensure accuracy? I mean, that would be a pretty impossible task. And so this law has allowed people and businesses to be creative, it's allowed businesses to try things out and see what works, see what doesn't work uh, without liability for maybe getting it wrong on occasion. You know, if you think, think of every site that's in existence right now where you can freely review information and comment in real time, without Section 230, I just don't see how that exists.
3: Yeah, and Section 230 uh, is basically an A-B experiment in two different dimensions. First, it's an A-B ex- experiment against the rest of the world where uh, we have a more uh, speech protective uh, legal regime than uh, other countries do. Um, And the consequence of that has been that the uh, user-generated content ecosystem, uh, the things that allow us to talk to each other, uh, is almost uh, exclusively a U.S.-based phenomenon. Um, The legal protections provided by the statute have actually fostered the ability, compared to other countries, for us to uh, see uh, the uh, entrepreneurship and development of an entire ecosystem. The other A-B test is that Section 230 is different than the offline rules. Uh, Websites are treated differently than publishers um, when they're publishing content. Uh, I'm sorry, something like an offline publisher, like a newspaper. Uh, The uh, the exact same content from the exact same author uh, published by the exact same um, publisher uh, published in the uh, uh, offline world will create liability, where in the online world, Section 230 may eliminate that liability. Um, and so looking at that A-B test, we have a bunch of things that only exist in the offline. I'm sorry, only exist in the online world that we'd never seen in the offline world. Um, and that's because the legal protection has created the ability to uh, do things that weren't possible in the offline world. So things like online marketplaces, things like how-to videos on YouTube, things like Wikipedia as a crowdsourced, edited uh, uh, version of Encyclopedia, and things like consumer reviews. These things don't exist in the offline world. Um, so when we say that Section 2, they created the internet, we can also say that it created things that never existed in human experience uh, because of the fact that the liability regimes were uh, suppressing them.
0: Okay, well, thank you. My next question is why should any listener or our listeners care about Section 230?
2: Well, I think I'm going to build a little bit on what Eric was just saying. You know, I might be dating myself with uh, this statement, but I remember what it was like before the internet was a thing. And I think it's important to remind ourselves and educate listeners who might not be old enough to have experienced what it was like before the internet, um, you know, was around to really appreciate. Uh, what we have now. I mean, it's so cliche to say back in the day, but back in the day I conducted research by reading books in a library, not running into a search on Google for a specific question that I was trying to answer. And if you wanted to talk to someone, you either had to go to their house or call them on the telephone and hope that they were home to even answer your call. I mean, cell phones were very expensive at the time, barely becoming a thing. And if you wanted to get news, You purchased a newspaper and read it. You listened to your local talk show, uh, on the radio or watched your local news station when it came on maybe three or four times a day at very specific times. And if you missed it, you missed it. There was no playback options and um, You know, or even easily accessible archives. If you wanted to discuss ideas with people, you pretty much had to do it face to face, you know, over a phone call. Uh, or maybe even over like a broadcast where you know listeners on radio could listen in and then call in and have discussion but that was still via the phone and so i mean that was it and so pretty much everything we know about the internet and how we Interact on it today is because of Section Two Thirty. You know, good, bad, and indifferent.
3: Yeah, I think Annette really hit a powerful statement when she said that uh, those of us who remember what life was like pre-internet um, cherish it very highly. Um, and I actually fear that the digital natives don't realize what the life what life was like back in the uh, uh, archaic stone age. Um, and sadly, what life might be like if we don't get the uh, internet uh, legal policies set uh, properly. Um, we depend upon uh, tool, online tools that allow us to communicate with each other on an hour-by-hour hour or even minute-by-minute minute basis. And so I encourage any listener, especially the digital natives, to, to do an inventory of the things that they're doing um, uh, on, on the Internet and to think about how many of those have all basically talking with another person. And if that's the case, chances are that Section 230 is a reason why you're able to do that. We're having this conversation on zoom it would be very difficult for us to arrange this podcast um, in a, a different medium but zoom exists because section 230 enables it to do so or we will uh, post this into various podcast uh, publication services those podcast publication services cannot exist without section 230 in order to protect them for liability or content they didn't generate and if, if people go through their daily routines um, and actually just stop and think How does this service even exist legally? What's the the legal foundation for this service to exist? I think they're going to be shocked at how many of the things that they love most about the internet are protected by Section 230.
0: Is there a particular inventory of all the services out there? How do you, if people are interested in this as a research topic, do you have any suggestions about where they would start? other than, of course, look at the legislation itself and then build from there?
3: Well, if we understand the division that Section 230 articulates, that websites aren't liable for third-party content, but they're liable for their own content. If we understand that basic division, every time that a reader uh, or a listener or a viewer is consuming content that wasn't originated by the online publisher, they're relying on Section 230. So I don't have a list because in fact, all of us are benefit from Section 230 at all times. Um, we don't even think about it because we know we're not liable for what other people are saying or doing. Um, and so we never have to go and stop and say, wait a minute, can I publish this? Um, am I not gonna be responsible for somebody else's stuff? Um, we've taken that, uh, that issue off the table. And so we all are beneficiaries of that. And I'll give you one example, something people can think about. When somebody uh, um, starts a thread on their Facebook uh, uh, timeline, Um, and then people start commenting on it. We never think that the person who started that thread is gonna be liable for what comments are posted in response to that. That's because section 230 protects the person who started the timeline uh, post. Um, But can you imagine if now every time that you post on Facebook, you had to say, I wonder if I'm gonna be liable for all the comments that are posted here. Do I need to go and edit those contents to reduce my liability? Do I have to go delete them? Do I have to go tell people to stop saying stupid things on my wall? That would be the kind of friction that's created that Section 230 takes away. So we are beneficiaries of Section 230, not only in the content that we consume, but in how we actually are able to manifest our own expression online.
0: Okay, thank you so much. In 2018, Congress amended uh, Section 230 in a law called uh, FOSTA. Um, Why did Congress do so and what has been the consequences?
2: So FOSTA stands for Fighting Online Sex Trafficking Act and was signed into law in April of 2018 and as the name suggests, FOSTA uh, was intended to curb online sex trafficking. And let me be clear, I don't think that there's a single reasonable mind that believes sex trafficking is okay, and I think that we you know, there were good intentions surrounding that law. However, you know, in my opinion, FOSTA was created specifically to target um, Backpage, and essentially Backpage was allowing advertisements Um, on their platform that were alleged to be facilitating sex trafficking including of minors and Backpage had successfully argued Section 230 to avoid liability um, in cases in the past that was brought against it and so Congress apparently felt that they needed to modify Section 230 to prohibit such actions and importantly, however, the government was able to shut down Backpage days before FOSTA was even signed into law So my point being there is that the government didn't actually need FOSTA in order to accomplish their goal. Um, As we discussed, there's already a carve out for uh, criminal acts in Section 330 anyway. And, you know, perhaps an unpopular opinion, but shutting down Backpage doesn't make, you know, bad guys stop being bad guys. It just makes them harder to track. And from everything that I have heard, I, I don't claim to be a FOSTA expert, but that's exactly what has happened. Not only um, have they made it harder for the bad guys to track, but it's also harder to track the victims. And further setting aside those aspects, you have platforms now removing lawful speech because they're afraid of liability. I mean, Craigslist got rid of personal ads, Reddit removed entire subreddits and so on. And so you have people um, who have lawful speech that are trying to communicate and now can't because they're concerned about you know, liability.
3: Yeah, and that hit all the key points about that people need to know about FOSTA, that FOSTA was designed uh, to take out Backpage, but wasn't necessary to do so. And it came at a really high cost. It came at a cost of being uh, unable to find as many victims, uh, law enforcement redirecting their efforts away from finding victims towards doing the standard uh, uh, vice squad work, which meant that uh, uh, commercial sex workers are now at greater risk of being uh, prosecuted, um, and they've also been driven to uh, uh, the streets as opposed to vetting their clients line which has put them in greater physical risk Um, and it shut down parts of the internet the internet just shrunk in response to FOSTA. and the the key thing here is that um, all of those outcomes were predictable and were predicted for congress before it took action that they didn't need the law and that it wasn't going to accomplish the goals it was only going to hurt communities Um, and congress proceeded anyway and that dynamic of why did congress act to create policy that actually is really the worst kind of policy it didn't make any groups better it only made groups worse Um, uh, is going to play out again and again. And what can we do to fix that dynamic? Because if we don't, we're doomed uh, to see more terrible policy coming up.
0: Building off of that, there seems to be numerous bills pending in Congress that attempt to further carve out exemptions for um, Section 230, Safe Harbor for Internet companies. What are the issues addressed by some of these bills? And is there a viable path for passage in this Congress?
2: (laughs) <laughs>
0: I know there's a lot of bills out there.
2: There, there are. And, and, you know, there's been so many that have been coming out even within the last couple of weeks. So um, my knowledge is going to be relatively limited. I know Eric has logged on them, so I will, I will touch on those and then what I know and then I'll let um, you know Eric fill in. So the, the big one that we were hearing about a lot earlier was um, the earn it act. And the EARN IT Act was Eliminating Abusive and Rampant Neglect of Interactive Technologies, Act of 2020. Um, and this, this bill uh, was designed to um, eliminate or attack uh, sites that had, uh, for lack of better words, child porn, they're now calling it CSAM, um, child sexual abuse material. And part of that though was, was to end, um, you know, there's a push to end end to end encryption because that way governments would take a look at the content um, and see what was going on and be able to uh, daily, you know, catch bad guys who were, who were uh, dealing in these kinds of material. Um, and for a host of reasons that it turns out that it's, you know, again, like FOSTA, good intentions, but bad for um, internet security and bad for the first amendment. And I'm sure Eric can fill in much more on that.
3: Oh yeah, uh, Dernod Act is terrible, um, but all the bills that uh, Congress is uh, uh, putting forth right now are terrible. And they're terrible in different ways. Um, and so it, it's actually difficult to summarize a response to the, to the questions because um, you have to look at each one and why it's terrible and what, what kind of uh, uh, animating assumptions um, were baked into the law and why those assumptions aren't gonna s- survive stress test. Um, so, but I wanna jump to the, the last question you asked, which is, um, uh, are any of them likely to pass? And uh, we are hoping, and I am keeping my fingers crossed that uh, we've run out of time in this session of Congress to get bills through, um, that we have a, a recess in Congress scheduled and then um, when everyone comes back, they're gonna be uh, focusing on the run-up to the election um, and that leaves relatively little time uh, for uh, uh, the committees to keep doing their work. Um, so. Uh, uh, one possibility is that uh, we may be safe for 2020, um, but every single bad idea that's been advanced into the bills and a whole bunch more are likely to come out in full force beginning in 2021. So I really look at 2021 as when uh, the internet is going to see its biggest challenge ever from Congress, um, and uh, there are going to be many major key fights to to um, uh, to engage in. and. Uh, at least for those of us who continue to think Section 230 is generally good policy, um, we have to win them all in order to to preserve the kind of internet that we have today. So I just want to mention a couple other uh, bills. Um, uh, Annette talked about the uh, EARNET Act, uh, which is terrible. Um, It's designed to get internet companies to do more to fight um, uh, against CSAM when they're already doing absolutely everything in their power to do so already. So I don't really understand what the drafters expect the internet companies to do. I think what they're just doing is saying, even if you can't do it uh, perfectly, you're still going to be financially a guarantor against any, um, uh, any CSAM on your network, which um, strikes me as a, a quick way to really shrink the internet. Um, another bill that's getting some attention is called the PACT Act, P-A-C-T. Um, which is a super complicated bill. It's got about a dozen different moving parts to it. Uh, But the general interests are are twofold. One, to carve back Section 230 in some very specific ways. And two, is to impose notice and transparency obligations on internet services. Now, most people might think, notice and transparency sounds good. Give me more of that. But when you look at how the bill would actually work in practice, it becomes actually deeply censorious. Um, It imposes a bunch of extra costs on publishers to expose how they run their editorial practices, something that we wouldn't do in the offline world. Um and uh uh and it's uh it's actually not gonna give any of the results that the drafters want. It's just gonna make everyone's life uh, worse. Um, so, uh, so we have um, uh, the PACDAC as another example. And then there's a long tail of bills, mostly coming from the Trump wing of the Republican Party, assuming there's a difference between the two, that are basically trying to tell internet companies to stop trying to remove content that is constitutionally protected. It's saying if the Constitution protects it, you have to leave it up, um, and you can only remove it if it's un- unconstitutional. Now, that leaves a whole bunch of really uh, terrible antisocial content that is constitutionally protected, but still we expect internet companies to remove. And the Trump wing of the Republican Party is trying to prevent that from happening. Um, And that uh, is really just another way of trying to, to give much more power to the trolls. We rely on the internet companies to do the kind of work to, to um, keep us safe online, to, to do socially beneficial screening of garbage, hateful um, uh, content. And there's an entire wing of Congress that's trying to prevent that from happening.
0: Um, that's actually a great segue to my next question. Given that uh, President Trump had an um, anti-section 230 executive order, Uh, that was passed in May of this year, what was the effect of his executive order?
2: So the executive order's stated purpose is to prevent restrictions on political debate on communication platforms. And the executive order sought to limit the immunity that interactive computer services are provided. More specifically, uh, for those that aren't familiar, President Trump made a couple of tweets. Um, Twitter decided that they were going to fact check that. Um, And, you know, just basically put up a caution label that maybe the information wasn't exactly correct and President Trump got upset about that. And and as Eric was saying, there is this huge um, notion that somehow conservative speech is is basically strategically being um, limited uh, for for all people to hear and The effect is, you know, I mean, I guess besides confusing the general populace about free speech and how the whole internet works, um, one of the recent things that has come out is that um, the the National Telecommunications and Information uh, Administration, NTIA, they had recently filed a petition with the FCC to clarify Section 230, and that was actually part of the executive order bring that request. And more specifically, they asked the FCC to clarify the relationships between different Sections C1 and C2. Um, they specifically asked for a finding that C1 had no application to any interactive computer services decision uh, um, agreement or action to restrict access to materials provided by another information content provider. Um, They were looking at trying to provide clear guidance to the courts, which is almost comical because there's 20 years of precedent um, about online platforms and uh, users on what content falls within section 230 C2 immunity. And specifically that the definition of information content provider includes editorial decisions that moderate Um, or alter content and then um, there was a mandatory disclosure for internet transparency which we're also seeing in some of these bills that have been um, that Eric was discussing Uh,
3: yeah um, I don't really enjoy talking about the executive order because um, it uh, it was in really at its core designed to play to uh, Trump's voter base not actually to address improve or even change the law Um, so Every time that we try to put some kind of logic or rationality over the executive order, um, it doesn't work because it wasn't designed to survive that kind of scrutiny. So as Annette mentioned, uh, there's a petition that's been submitted by the NTIA to the FCC. Um, That's actually something that has legal uh, consequence. There's now a request pending at the FCC to do something. Um, But the executive order didn't do that. All it did is said, go do this work for me. Kind of like a mob boss would would tell uh, uh, his uh, or her loyal lieutenants, you know, I need you to do me a favor. Um, so, uh, so the executive order had a couple other types of uh, do me a favor type request to the FTC, as well as to the Department of Justice, and we'll see how each of those responds. The Department of Justice has already made it clear they'll do whatever uh, the executive order asked, and likely more, to burn down Section 230. So, they didn't really need any help, but they got it anyway. Um, And uh, the executive order is already being cited by plaintiffs as examples of why they should win in court. Um, uh, Plaintiffs are reading uh, the language and they're saying, hey, I think I have these rights given this statement of the law. Um, And the courts are just looking at them askance saying, do you actually understand that it didn't do anything? Um, So the executive order is really a good example about how our government isn't really trying at this point to come up with good policy. Uh, This is all about just trying to play to their base.
0: One last question on this general topic. What efforts are being done at either the industry or the consumer level to provide pushback or support to what Section 230 currently provides now? How have people or companies been activated to fight against these um, encroachments?
2: From platforms, I think that there is starting to be a rumble among practitioners who represent platforms I think that there is starting to begin more engagement with different sorts of organizations, um, different sort of think tanks, people that are trying to clearly convey um, the point that, you know, the stuff that is going on is not the best for the internet. I mean, I hope that we, you know, can continue to do that. But as, you know, it it is an issue. Um, I know that I myself have, you know, discussed with other practitioners who, like me, Represent um, website platforms, and we too are battling the uh, people who are asking about um, the executive order. And you took something down, so therefore, you know, you, you guys are going to be liable. And for what damages? I don't even know. Uh, it just none of it actually even makes sense. Um, but we see a, a lot of plaintiffs that are, especially the propers, that just don't understand. Um, raising a bunch of of issues. So I do think that there's there's sort of an hour of push, but I also believe that there's been, um, and I think one of the things that Eric might talk about, I'm hoping, because I love to learn more, is that there's been some new internet um, societies sort of being put together, especially in the content moderation roles, and trying to come up with best practices. So that way maybe we can be a little more proactive than reactive.
3: Yeah, we'll definitely talk about that in a moment. Um, But for the listeners uh, to this podcast, um, this... (laughs) If you take away only one message, please, I hope it's this. Um, that you assume that your politicians care about and love the internet as much as you do. And the reality is that they don't. And we've had just this, this stunning disconnect between what uh, we as, as, uh, as the normal Americans want from our internet and what our politicians think we want from the internet and what they're doing to try to shape the internet to meet what they think we want when really, in fact, they misunderstand greatly what we are hoping they'll do. Um, So the politicians, your politicians, if you're listening to this, chances are your politicians are preparing to burn down the internet. Um, That they are prepared to tear up Section 230 and say, we're done allowing people to talk to each other on the internet. Now we're still gonna have an internet. What I describe is that we'll have an internet that'll look a lot like Netflix. We're gonna pay a monthly subscription to a service that will allow us to have access to this walled garden of content that is professionally produced, and it's great. I love Netflix, it's just not the internet, but that is the internet that our politicians are driving us towards. So um, what can you do about it? Uh, It's actually quite simple. Our politicians need to hear from us, all of us, hey, we love this thing called the internet, make sure you don't burn it down. And please, 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 if you don't do anything else, do not assume that that's where their head's at, because chances are their head's actually in the direct opposite place.
0: And I think that's a great segue uh, to talking about the Trust and Safety Professional Association.
3: Yeah, I'm super excited about this effort. This is a long time coming. I'm working with a team of others to uh, that launched two new organizations, the Trust and Safety Professional Association and the Trust and Safety Foundation. And the, the goal here is to create an environment that allows people who are doing the socially beneficial content moderation work at internet companies to be able to talk with each other and to get to know each other and to exchange information amongst each other. Um, and you might say, well, okay, that sounds pretty basic. is that what the internet's meant to do? The reality is that there hasn't been a space for them to engage in those conversations as a community. And without that, we've seen each company kind of work as a silo um, or a, as if they're on their own island. Um, and so we're not getting the kind of cross fertilization of ideas across the industry that we need and that will ultimately benefit all of us. Another benefit of the organization will be to allow for better job matching functions. So right now there's not a good place if you wanna work in this space or if you already work in this space in order to match with employers who are looking for those kinds of skills. Um, so we can create just a job board, um, something simple as that, that literally doesn't exist today. So um, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit to think about the community people who are doing this really socially critical work and helping them do their job better, helping them, them uh, help their companies and their employers do their job better. Um, and so we're, we're planning to tackle all of that.
0: Excellent. Um, how does the foundation differ from the professional association?
3: yeah association is going to be a professional organization so it's going to be membership driven um, and uh, because of that, we had to do a different legal configuration, um, and we wanted to set up a nonprofit arm um, uh, that would allow for certain types of uh, donors to be able to get tax advantage uh, donations, uh, for example. Um, and that's the foundation. So it's basically a complement to the work that we are doing in the professional association, but where the the ability to do uh, things that nonprofit can do. Um, Uh, will uh, will be best advantaged. So we expect that the foundation will do things like uh, uh, sponsoring research um, and helping evangelize research, maybe trying to help make sure that we're studying some of the things that are just not studied at all. There's a real black box of information, what's actually happening in in the content moderation field. And the uh, foundation can be the kind of place that can spur uh, the, um, uh, the generation of credible information in that field. Um, so we're hoping that it's going to become a trusted uh, source of information, as well as helping generate uh, credible additional information from third party researchers so that we understand the field better.
0: Um, are there any immediate goals that the organization has for right now, a timeline of activities, any public facing activities?
3: Yeah, um, we're still putting all the pieces together. So uh, I don't have a specific timeline about uh, when we're going to roll out uh, some of the membership benefits. um, But it is high on our priority list, as you can imagine, because the need is immediate. Mm -hmm. um and uh, so i already mentioned some of the 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 first wave of deliverables but let me just reinforce it creating gathering spaces for people to talk to each other in the community something that doesn't exist today uh trying to create some kind of job matching function and uh trying to make sure that the kind of research is taking place that will help um, inform the discussions and understanding of the community
0: for non-professionals who are interested in remoting internet freedom. What kind of support are you looking for from the general community?
3: Uh, yeah. And so just to be clear, the, the goal of the, the organization is to, uh, is to build a, an infrastructure for the community so that the community itself becomes more effective at the work it does. This doesn't necessarily mean that it'll be pro-free speech or anti-free speech. It's not, that's not really the right way of measuring the, the group's activity. The group's activity is going to be, can we help these people talk to each other and understand how to do their jobs better? Okay. Um, and whatever consequence of that we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Um, the group is, groups are not policy organizations. We're not gonna be lobbying Congress on uh, substantive matters like you should have this kind of law or that kind of law. Although we might try to speak out about the needs of the community. There are things that the community needs that policymakers need to understand. Um, we haven't opened up membership yet, but when we do open up membership, we'll have a, a category for people who are not doing the work in the field, but are, are interested supporters. That could be things like academics or government people or just other professionals who find it interesting. Um, so there'll be a way for uh, for those folks to engage in the community as well and to learn from it um, and when we open up membership.
0: Okay. Thank you both so very much for participating and uh, really appreciate your uh, thoughtful comments and the way you are educating uh, various audiences on these issues. Thank you so very much for giving your time and effort for this.
3: Yeah, thank
1: you. Thanks for organizing. It sure, fun. my thank pleasure. You. you have been listening to Without Precedent, a podcast series that considers the impact of technology and innovation on the law and legal practice. Our music was composed by Nicole Jacobus. Our editor is Asta Chala. Our audio engineer is Fern Silva of the Santa Clara University Communication Department. The views expressed in Without Precedent are the views of the participants and do not reflect the views of the High Tech Law Institute, Santa Clara Law, Santa Clara University, or NVIDIA and should not be construed as legal advice. To learn more about Without Precedent, Visit our website, law at scu.edu slash without precedent.